For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of these United States, stated some pretty famous words at his inaugural address in 1961. I'm sure that you probably know them, and I'm going to say them, I'm going to try not to do a horrible Boston accent. I promised myself I would not do it. But he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He wanted to encourage Americans to shift their mindset He wanted them to think about how they could contribute to their country, how they could contribute to their society, rather than just thinking about what the government ought to owe them, what the government was obligated to do for them. He inspired people to take an active role in making their country a better place, making their communities a better place, uh, to be willing to invest in their communities through acts of service. And that's similar to the message that we find in today's sermon text, Only this particular passage isn't speaking about the government. It's not even speaking about the community at large. This particular passage is narrowly focused in on the church. Paul says that God divinely dispenses unique gifts to his people in order for them to be put to use in particular local churches. The head, the heart, and the hand then all awakened and activated by God as an offering, a living sacrifice in the new spiritual temple, which is the church. So the big idea for this morning's sermon is this, use your distinct God-given gifts for the church. Use your distinct God-given gifts for the church. And we'll think through this in three sections in this passage. First, think moderately about yourself in light of the gospel from verse 3. Second, the church is a united and diverse body, from verses 4 and 5. And third, put your gifts to work in the body, from verses 6, 7, and 8. So that's the plan. Let's pray one more time before we officially begin. Father, we are so grateful that you have seen fit to gift this particular church, even as Harry prayed earlier, in so many wonderful ways. Uh, We pray this morning that you would help us to be encouraged by your word, uh, recognizing that you have have called us to embrace what we've sang about earlier, that our worth is not in what we own, but that you have seen fit to give us gifts and have given our lives extra meaning and purpose uh, that we, we owe to you alone. So we pray this morning that we would see that rightly, that we would validate it, 
and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would encourage us to get to work. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, think moderately about yourself in light of the gospel. Verse 3, one more time. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The Christian is to carefully, soberly, rightly, moderately consider him or herself in light of the gospel. So we've just read in the verses just before this that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The verse just before this, right? And then he follows up verse two with this verse, verse three, about thinking. In fact, in the original Greek, the word for think shows up four times just in this one sentence. Like he's really emphasizing this. If we translated this more literally, it might sound something like this. Do not overthink about yourself more than you ought to think, but think with moderate thinking. All right, Paul. The first thing then we're told to do as a means of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is to correct our self-perception, to think rightly about ourselves. Consider the contrast that is here. The depraved mind, if you remember from Romans chapter 1, that depraved mind that does not think rightly does not acknowledge God, does not give thanks to God. Uh, If there is no God, then there would be no one to thank, right? It's just you. Uh, You're a self-made man or you're a self-made woman. You have natural abilities and you have cultivated them in certain ways in order to become who you are today. I'm sure you might want to tip your hat and say thanks to your family or friends who helped you along the way, but in the final analysis, your friends and family didn't give you your natural gifts. They're yours. And so if there is no God, there is no one to thank. You can't really thank a blind, impersonal force called luck. And so there is a self-seeking aspect of the depraved mind that's distinct then from the renewed mind that Paul encourages us to embrace here contrast that with the renewed mind which does give thanks to God the Christian recognizes that if he or she has any ability any gifts it's because her creator has measured them out and distributed them to her as he sees fit Your talents are on loan from God, as one person used to say. The renewed mind is marked by humility. And we can see this even modeled by Paul himself in the way that he begins the sentence. Look how he says it. For by the grace given to me, I say. Paul's speaking authoritatively here as an apostle. But he recognizes that his apostleship is not something that he came up with. He did not make himself an apostle. God made him an apostle. And so he sees his instruction here that he's giving to this church about how to use their gifts in Rome as in and of itself a gift from God to the church. It's not about him. I love this about Paul. It's not about Paul. 
that is definitional of humility. That definitional aspect of humility is a recognition that whatever good you've got was given to you by God. You didn't build that. You don't own that. It was given to you. The ancient Greeks recognized this. They would talk about often in their myths about the destructive power of pride. Many of those ancient Greek myths were filled with characters who embodied self-centered pride, and that pride led to destruction for everyone around them. You can just take the, the myth of Icarus, for example. Perhaps you know that story. His father, Daedalus, gives him wings that are made of feathers and wax, and his dad says, don't fly higher than you ought to fly. And what does Icarus do? Well, don't tell me what I can't do. And so he flies so high, he flies so close to the sun that his wax and his wings melt, and he falls to the earth, and he dies. And of course, the moral of that story is that one should be humble and not let ambition or hubris cloud your judgment. Don't let that keep you from thinking soberly. It's a common theme that applies even in the Greek pantheon, those gods that the Greeks came up with in their own imagination. Pride intentionally defies the order of God's designed cosmos. And so it destabilizes, it deconstructs, it destroys, and when it does that, it invites chaos. At its heart, this sinful pride wants to move beyond the limitations that God has seen fit to give. This is why Augustine thought of the first sin as properly being that of pride. Adam and Eve wanted to go beyond what God had given them. They might have thought something like, I know I've got plenty of fruit, all the fruit, but I don't have that one fruit. I was not given that fruit. That's the fruit I want. I don't want the rest of this fruit. I want to go beyond what God has explicitly given. I want to transgress that boundary. Now, I wonder if you have ever had any thoughts like that. The Greeks called that transgressive pride hubris, and it is the opposite of charis. Grace is how we translate that in English. So grace opposes that sinful pride by definition, and you can see that in the way that Paul talks about the grace that's given to me then. I'm going to speak to you out of that. I wrestled for a long time with this particular phrase here in this verse, the measure of faith. I was having a hard time understanding what faith means here because we know that scripture speaks of faith as being um, kind of a black and white thing. It's either belief or unbelief. So in that sense, that saving faith, there's, it's not really measured by degrees. It's not really measured by grades. And so this must not be speaking of saving faith then in that sense. And so it seems best in the context of this passage, Paul's argument here, to understand the measure of faith, as he puts it, in terms of the giftings that God has seen fit to divinely distribute. God equips every believer, and note that, note that in this verse. He says, I say to everyone among you, note that he's talking to the whole church in Rome individually, God equips every believer with unique gifts and the appropriate measure of faith that is required to use that gift effectively or appropriately. Look at verse six. We all have gifts, quote, that differ according to the grace given to us. I think this is, how, this is helpful in understanding verse three. 
And those different gifts require different measures of faith to put them to use. And so in this sense, faith is a resource that God provides in order to help you, to equip you to do the work that he's called you to. God assigns you the right measure of faith that you need to recognize and to carry out what he has called you to. It's almost a a synonym for grace, a measure of grace is kind of how we heard it talked about in Ephesians 4 uh, in our call to worship text. Thinking too highly of oneself is a fairly obvious problem. I think most people can recognize that. But check this out. Uh, If God has intentionally given you a gift, thinking soberly doesn't just mean that you don't think you're too good for everything. It also means you don't think you're not good enough for anything. That sober judgment, as it's called here, or moderate thinking, we might say as well, is a call to carefully assess yourself in light of the gospel. Tim Keller, in his great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says that humility seen through the lens of the gospel is not thinking more of myself, and it's not thinking less of myself either. Uh, It's thinking of myself less. We need to be careful not to overcorrect. Hubris is a problem. Self-deprecating, well, God hasn't given me anything, is also not healthy. Think moderately, soberly. Don't overcorrect. In Romans 15, Paul does this. Listen, Paul is going to talk about how he is proud of his work for God. This is the word that's used. Chapter 15, verse 17. But in context, this is how Paul talks about this. In context, He is recognizing, again, the grace that is given to him by God to accomplish the work that he's been called to, and he doesn't venture to say anything about his ministry other than what Christ has accomplished in him. So this is not a transgressive pride, it is not a selfish pride, but he's proud to be involved in the work of God through Christ. This is how Paul speaks about it in chapter 15, so let's not not overcorrect here. Don't think of yourself as such a worthless worm that you don't think God can use you. There is such a thing as godly ambition. To soberly take account, to take stock of what God has called and equipped you to do. There's no reason not to expect God to be willing to accomplish great things through you. The renewed mind is like the mind of Christ, which we read about in Philippians 2 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. This is the mind of Christ. Don't think so highly of yourself. This is what we're we're hearing here. Don't think so highly of yourself that you only look for the kind of tasks that will feed your ego. And at the same time, don't pretend like God didn't give you something to offer as a sacrifice to his church. Think moderately about yourself in light of the gospel. Avoid both of those extremes. Paul was given grace to exhort the church in Rome. He talks about this in chapter 15. God has given him grace to exhort this church. He has given him grace to be a minister to the Gentiles. And of course, Paul was used greatly, uh, an understatement, of course, in, in human history and church history for sure. Paul's measure of faith was well beyond mine. And I'm cool with that. That doesn't really bother me. I, however, have been dealt the appropriate measure of faith 
in order to do what he has called me to do. And you should know that the same is true of you. You have access to the faith that you need to make God's grace visible to those who need it. Those who need to see God's grace, you have his grace in order to be able to make that visible to them as a gift by God's grace. You are to think moderately according to the measure of faith that you've been assigned because your gifts, your gifts were not given to you for you. That makes sense, right? They were given to you for the good of others. Verses four and five help us to see how your unique gifts are meant to be used in the context of the church. Look at verses four through five, where we see that the church is a united and diverse body. I'll read those verses again, verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Paul uses a pretty simple analogy here. Just think about this, though. The human body has different members, and all of the members of the body don't do the same thing. A body member is like a part of the body or an organ of the body. We could think of it in those ways. So the eyes have a function. The eyes see. The ears have a different function. They hear. The legs have a different function, right? The legs walk. All of them do different things, but they're all united in that one body. Each member of the body, being different, takes on a different function by design in the human body, working in concert with the other members to make the body do what it's got to do. Uh, even to do something as simple as walking. I was just thinking about this uh, this week. Even something as simple as walking takes a lot of effort <laughs> for your body. Uh, the eyes have to bring in information. The inner ear has to have this sort of sense of balance. The brain has to process all of the information that's coming in. The heart has to pump the blood that powers the muscles that are propelling you forward. The, the bones have to sustain all of this. All of that's just a walk. All of these things, and there's much more, I'm sure, all of these things need to be doing their jobs, doing their roles, in order for the body to be able to do what it is called to do. Each different member of the body contributes a different function in order to accomplish something greater than any of them could do individually. And that is a good analogy for the church. Thank you, Paul. Verse five, he says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The church is a united and diverse body. I, I sometimes get the question when people come in and, and think, uh, I don't, I'm not sure about the concept of membership. Why don't you show me where is church membership in the Bible? Uh, and this would not be the only verse that we would want to reference, but I hope you can see it here. Everyone who is in Christ, that is to say everyone who, who's a Christian, is a part of Christ's body and is joined with other members. This is an unavoidable reality. This is the way it is. And I might ask the question, how can you be a body part when you're apart from the body? In valuing meaningful church membership, as we do here at Trinity, we simply think that we should live in light of this biblical reality. 
that Christ measures out unique gifts to each of us, then draws us together to live as a holy priesthood, giving our bodies as living sacrifices to build up his new spiritual temple called the church. And that's why our statement of faith faith reads as we confessed together out loud that we believe that faithful church membership is the primary context for engaging in the one another's of the Bible and exercising spiritual gifts. Uh, He didn't give you gifts to be greedy with. That is not the point of gifts. Whatever gifts that you have been given are not for your own good. They're for the good of others. Uh, And rightly understood, this aspect, this approach, flips a whole bunch of modern evangelicalism upside down. We tend to walk into church and evaluate them based on how well they meet our needs. Uh, How well are you going to meet my expectations? But scripture would teach us that God assigned every Christian a duty to contribute to that church. Uh, And so the more mature approach is to find a church that preaches Lord, uh, the Lordship of Christ, the gospel in its fullness, soberly think about your gifting, look for where the needs are, link arms, and get to work. The greatest good, I promise you, the greatest good is not your needs, it's the needs of the body. And so if you're wondering what areas are available for you to serve in, this is, the, this is a fair application, right? <clears throat> I didn't mean for that to be an infomercial. <clears throat> if you're wondering what areas are available to serve in, this is, a, this is a survey that we give everyone who comes in as a new member. Just to let them know what is available, you can point your phone to that QR code in your camera app and tap on it. It'll take you to a quick form. You don't have to fill it out. It'll just give you an idea of what's available. And if you'd like, you can tap a couple of those boxes, send it into the office, and someone will be glad to follow up with you this upcoming week. Now, if you're not sure where your gifting is, you don't know where to serve, here's here's some advice, here's some counsel. Pick where you think the need is the greatest and roll up your sleeves. You might find out that the Holy Spirit has equipped you with gifts that you didn't even know you had. It is fairly common, actually, to discover your gifting in the act of serving. I know Eric would love to have you help with hospitality and food. That'd be a great birthday gift for him. You usually need childcare workers. There's plenty of areas to serve, and we, we, I'm very happy to say, serve a body here that is very active in its service and putting its gifts to work. Members of the body serve the body. And so that's why we only have members serve in the ministries of the church. Some people think that's weird, and I have to explain to them why why we do that. And we would admit that it's rare. It's not all that common that this is how we do things. Uh, Most churches try to get people to sign up to serve, and then in the act of serving, they think, well, maybe they'll become a Christian after that. And so in the act of serving, maybe they'll come to the faith in that. And that might, that might work. I'm not, a, I'm not saying that that wouldn't necessarily work. It might even be a successful way to increase engagement, uh, to build the, the attendance of the church. 
but we're not ultimately trying to build a crowd of busy people so that we can feel successful about what we're doing here. That's gross. We are members of Christ's body participating as he builds up his church through his spirit. So to to give anyone the impression that they don't need to believe in Jesus in order to belong to his body, I think you'll find is directly antithetical to scripture here, and it would be contrary to our mission as a church. And so we do practice that members are the the ones who serve the body. Those who believe belong, and the Holy Spirit has given them gifts to use. Now, this doesn't mean that we hate guests. Uh, I hope you know that. Uh, In fact, one of the things that I consistently hear in membership interviews is how uh, this church is perceived to be very welcoming. I think that's great, and we need to acknowledge that, keep that at front of mind, always be working on that. We love guests, but we recognize them as guests. We think that having healthy boundaries is the most loving thing that we can do for those guests. And I think that we all understand this instinctively uh, in, in some ways. If you have guests over for dinner, you don't expect them to cook the meal for you. You would expect the family members to do the serving, not the guests. And so it is here in the church. If you have questions about any of that, or if you're interested in membership here, you can take the three-week class. It'll be, we're, we've typically done this on Wednesday evenings. We're trying it now on Sunday mornings just to try to make it easier for those who need childcare and to make it bite-sized chunks. Sunday mornings, the first three weeks of February, 9.15 during the equipping hour. If you have questions, please come to that class. It'd be a great place to do that. You can sign up there or at the welcome desk following the service. The analogy of the church, though, teaches us also, teaches us this, no member of the body is useless. There are no appendixes, uh, if if you can put it in those terms, in Christ's body. I was going to say appendices, but I don't know if that's right. I think that's a different. Even the least prominent member of the body is useful and is to be treated with respect. We need each other. Trinity Bible Church exists to make disciple-making disciples and to plant disciple-making churches. And so we always have to keep this bigger picture in mind. What is it that we're trying to actually accomplish here together? Trinity doesn't exist so we can keep ourselves busy. Uh, It doesn't exist so we can keep ourselves occupied. Our whole mission is to make disciples and to use whatever gifts we've been given to help each other reach heaven. We are united in that goal. And we each have our role to play. Gospel unity propels the mission. This is the big melodic theme that keeps coming up over and over again throughout the book of Romans. We see it very clearly here in this passage. Paul continues by giving us a selection of what some of those gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. He gives a selection of what some of those gifts look like and then how those gifts are meant to be used. Three Put your gifts to work in the body. Verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, 
the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And so you can count there, he runs through seven different sample gifts, we might say, and then he shows how those gifts are meant to be put to use. Every gift, please note, comes with a corresponding action. The gift is given in order that it might go out in action. This is meant to represent just how diverse the gifts are. We, we already read from Ephesians 4 that there are other lists of gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, of course, has some as well. So this is not comprehensive, it's not exhaustive, there's more to it, but here's a sampling. And I think we'd be helped just by sort of slowing, slowing down and walking through them quickly, but one at a time. First, if the gift is prophecy, it should be practiced in proportion to our faith. And this perhaps is the one that would be most uh, controversial, or people might take different understandings of what this means to, to prophesy the gift of prophecy. There are going to be different perspectives on the spiritual gift of prophecy. So we would recognize that uh, during the time of the apostles, during this time of the New Testament, some folks received spontaneous revelations from God that, that would be shared and then they would be evaluated, they would be judged by the church. We find this recorded in 1 Corinthians 14. In Acts chapter 11, there was a man named Agabus who predicted that there would be a famine during Claudius's reign, that emperor of Rome. And then in Acts 21, that same guy predicts that the Jews would bind up Paul and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This New Testament prophecy was distinct from Old Testament prophecy. So this prophecy was not on the same level of the Old Testament prophets who recorded Scripture no prophet in the New Testament had a revelation from God that was universally and generally authoritative for everyone everywhere. But some were apparently given insight into and guidance about particular circumstances. Now, some Christians believe that this particular gift, the gift of prophecy, ceased by the time the New Testament was done. Now, that was a unique authority that prophets and apostles had during that time, and it was only for that time when the, the church was being built. Uh, there's, there's scriptural warrant for this. And the New Testament was being lived out and recorded. That was a unique time. We had apostles and prophets. We don't have those anymore. Now that we have the Bible, we don't need any new revelation from God in that sense. We don't need new apostles like Paul or John, and we don't need new prophets to speak new words from God because God has already said everything he needs to say. What he has said in Scripture is sufficient. Now, others agree that Scripture is sufficient in and of itself. God has said what he needs to say authoritatively, binding for all times to all people, but God continues to give the gift of prophecy just in a different way from that Old Testament prophecy. And so what they understand prophecy to mean then in this New Testament sense we might think of in terms of promptings or an impression from God, the Holy Spirit. I think we'd all want to say that we believe that God uses impressions to guide us, to lead us, but those promptings aren't infallible, and those promptings have to be evaluated according to Scripture, so distinct from Old Testament prophecy in that sense. In any case, Paul brings up this particular gift 
and says that it should be exercised only according to the proportion of faith that has been given. That's that measure of faith that we read about in verse 3. Similar phrasing here. In other words, we shouldn't pretend that we have an impression from God in order to draw attention to ourselves or to try to manipulate somebody with it. Don't pretend like you've got a word from God in order to draw attention to yourself or to get your will over on someone else. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, says that prophecy was about building people up and encouraging the faith community. And so if you have sensed that you've been given an impression to share an encouraging insight with a fellow Christian, you should do it. I think this is what Paul is telling you here. Always with humility, and if you're unsure about it, or it's a big deal, or you think it's like a sensitive thing, you, you should probably ask for some counsel from a trusted brother or sister before you share it with anyone that you think needs to, need, needs to hear it. Second, the gift, if the gift is serving, it should be practiced in serving. This one's a lot more straightforward, isn't it? Serving is helping other Christians in practical ways. And it's worth mentioning here that these aren't exclusive gifts. So it's not like you'd only get one of these and you have to kind of stick to your lane. I would venture to say that most of us have the gift of serving, whether we'd like to acknowledge it or not. We know, though, that there are some people who just seem to have like a little bit extra. I hesitate to to mention anyone in particular because there are countless members who serve us so sacrificially and so well here, but I think of Julie Darris' desire and ability to create loving, safe spaces and doing all the small, minor details just to make sure that things like that happen. And we have recognized that actually officially as a church because she serves us in the office of deacon. She is the deacon of uh, preschool. And so we've, we have recognized that since uh, her, her service uh, in that sense. Not everyone, I want to say, how would I put that? Everybody has the gift of serving, but not everyone is a deacon in that sense. There is an office of deacon that is distinct. Deacon means servant. My son asked me if he was going to come up in the service, uh, sermon text today, and he's not. That was as close as I'll get. But not everyone has the gift of service is officially recognized in that office, but some of them are. And so I want you to notice, as Lucas mentioned earlier, there are two deacons, candidates, mentioned in your worship guide that we'll be voting on together as a body next Sunday. Uh, Cindy Gooch uh, is, is up to, to service by administrating the details of the ordinances of baptism and communion. I genuinely can't think of anybody who cares more about the ordinances than, than Cindy, and she is a gift to this church in that sense and is willing to serve us in that way. Chris Lynn Thomas, a candidate to administrate the, deals of our, the, the details of our missions team. Uh, Chris Lynn, wonderfully gifted, uh, served overseas, has been on this team for uh, around 10 years now. Whether a deacon or not, we should all see ourselves as a servant in some sense. The deacons, though, act as shock absorbers, taking care of practical matters so that elders are freed up to do their responsibilities, different roles, both important and serving together in that one united body. The one gifted in teaching, third, should teach. The one gifted in teaching should teach. And so if you can clearly and faithfully explain and apply scripture, 
you should do it for the good of the church. We really value teaching here, and we love to, to train men and women to teach the Bible. I was really encouraged on Wednesday night. Uh, Ryan put together a little group of the, the teachers who will be going through our wonderful Wednesday Kids Club program. I don't know if you know this or not, but they go through our sermon text a week in advance. And so Ryan and the team come up with unique content coming along with our sermon text so that we're working on the same page as the kids ministry there on Wednesday nights. And so we got together and just walked through, this is what we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 through 16 for the semester to try to get all on the same page. And we have great teachers who are willing to set aside that time. They've been gifted in that sense and they want to put it to work. And I was encouraged in the way that they were... um, putting that gift to work, uh, even that last Wednesday night as they were being trained on how to teach. The one gifted with exhortation should exhort. Exhort is kind of like a unique church word. I don't know if you hear that anywhere else, really. It's the same word that was used in verse one, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore. So exhorting in this sense could be appealing, We could also translate it as coming alongside and encouraging or supporting or calling upon. It is to stir up to love and good works. I wonder if you know anybody like that. This might might look like strengthening. This might look like comforting. This might look even like warning if someone is venturing off into a dangerous place. An important gifting. The one who contributes should do so with generosity, with sincerity, with singleness of mind, more literally. So giving, not within a a hidden agenda, not trying to accomplish something with my giving. There are no strings attached. Just financially supporting the church to accomplish her mission of making disciples both here and abroad. I am blown away that our harvest offering this last year was nearly $31,000. It's amazing. It's so exciting. Uh, To be able to put that to work here in the body and then to put it in the body uh, of those Christians in China who need to have good, trustworthy resources in their hands so that those churches can be built up to make disciples. How amazing that we get to partner with that because of your generosity. We have been gifted with very generous people here as a gift from God, and it is an absolute blessing. The one who leads should do so with zeal, should lead with diligence, should lead responsibly, not skating by with doing the minimum. Leaders are meant to delegate. I know that, and I'm trying to learn it more. They're meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But I think we need to recognize that 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 does not mean that they are exempt from doing work too. Leadership is notoriously difficult to define. One widely read book on spiritual leadership defines it this way. I think this is helpful. Spiritual leadership is moving people on to God's agenda. That's well put. It's a matter of being a positive influence on others, leading them to a flourishing life rather than ignoring them or much worse, exploiting them for your own personal gain. Leaders are not about being served. This is Mark 10.45. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. Leaders lead in serving. Maybe this morning you need a, a shot in the arm if you're a leader here in this particular body. 
just to be reminded to, to serve with that gifting with zeal, responsibly doing the work. Or perhaps some of those among us here need to soberly consider whether or not leadership in the church is something that you ought to pursue. May the Spirit guide you in that. The one who acts, does acts of mercy should do so with cheerfulness. Lastly, in this list, one of the things that I think we all appreciate about going to the restaurant called Chick-fil-A is that when, when they, they say, my pleasure, it really looks like they mean it. And it makes it fun to be there. I'm sure all of us have had an experience where you go to a restaurant and the service is kind of like, it looks like you're putting them out. It's like, I don't really want to serve you, but you're here and my boss told me to. And I just love that culture that Chick-fil-A has somehow managed to, to cultivate where when they say, my pleasure, they have a smile on their face and it really looks like there's cheerfulness that goes along with that service. Showing mercy to the needy can be draining. We recognize that. You can become discouraged. You can be disconnected as you make withdrawals from that, that tank of sympathy, which only has so much in it. And so if you're gifted with being drawn towards act of mercy, we're reminded here to do it with cheer, to do it with, with cheer, like a cheerful giver. It's the same word. We want those who are on the receiving end of the mercy to receive it as a joy and not as a burden, as if it truly is more of a blessing to give than to receive. Well, in view of God's mercies, we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for the good of the spiritual temple, which is the church. So even taking care of spreadsheets can be an act of worship, building up the church. And it's your gifting. You and I are to think rightly, soberly, moderately about the gifts that we've been given because they weren't given for me, they weren't given for you, they were given for one another. And then we are to put that unique gifting to work for the building up of the body. Let's pray.